Welcome everyone uh, to this evening's talk. This is the second uh, book talk organized by the Center for the Study of Internationalism. Um, the Center uh, is, a, is a hope for researchers from all kinds of fields and disciplines, thinking about internationalism, international organizations, all kinds of international questions about surrounding the, the fabric of the world of states and institutions. Um, we have a website. website uh, which lists our members. In fact, I think half this room is probably already a member. If you're not, drop me a line. Um, we can add you. Uh, we have a lively blog and starting to build up a number of resources and podcasts and things like that on the website. So it's starting to look like a kind of quite active home uh, for researchers. So if you're not doing so already, follow us on Twitter or Facebook or drop us an email and we can, we can add you at least to the mailing list um, so that you can events. And today, Alana O'Malley is here. I'm so happy uh, to be able to introduce her. Alana is known to many of you, I'm sure. She wrote her PhD on Anglo-American relations at the UN during the Congo crisis, 1960-64, at the European University Institute in Florence. Um, one of the products of this thesis is, of course, the book that she will be talking about in a minute. Currently, Alana is a lecturer at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. Um, she's held a long series of fellowships and various things. Most recently, she was a Fulbright Research Scholar at the George Washington University in Washington. Um, interestingly, it's been a very busy time for Alana. She's also just published, or is about to publish, a book she's edited with Simon Jackson. Um, the, it called The Institution of International Order from the League of Nations to the United Nations, which is, I think, due out with Routledge any day now. Um, so, lots of great stuff coming out. Today, Alana will introduce one of, one of these brand new books called The Diplomacy of Decolonization, America, Britain and the United States during the Congo Crisis, 1960-64, which has just been published with Manchester University Press. Um, the plan is uh, a kind of seminar-style talk. Alana will talk for half an hour, 40 minutes, and then we'll have lots of time for questions and discussions and so on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Jessica. Super generous introduction, and um, thanks also for the invitation to speak. So I got really excited when I heard about your centre. I think it's really a, a great idea and so badly needed to bring together all these people who are working on these common themes. So I'm really honoured to be featured in your series. Um, and um, thank all of you for coming because it's such an amazing day outside that you've given up the, the sunlight and the vitamin D so you can um, hear me chat about this. I'm going to kind of chat, yeah, briefly about 30, 35 minutes about the book um, and just kind of take you through some of the major themes and ideas behind it and where it came from. And then we'll have a bit of a kind of questions and answers session at the end. Um, and I hope that it's kind of somewhat um, along the lines of what you're all doing. I think it's kind of interesting uh, in certain respects that way. Um, so as Jessica explained, I did my PhD in Florence, um, uh, extremely spoiled at the EUI for five years. And then um, this book has come out of that um, kind of torturously after the dissertation. It has eventually um, come out in a little bit of a different form. Um, and the book makes the main, the main argument of the book is that the Congo crisis from 1960 to 1964 is, has always been understood in the literature as um, a key moment for the Cold War. Um, 
and that decolonization was also something that happened during the Congo crisis. And the book really argues that it is the turning point for the decolonization process. So rather than Suez um, in 56 or um, the Algerian conflict uh, at the UN or later episodes such as the Cuban Missile Crisis or um, the Berlin blockade or um, decolonization campaigns uh, in Africa, that the Congo crisis is the moment that explodes all of these preconceived notions about what decolonization means to the US and to the UK. Um, and I suppose the major difference between the dissertation and the book is that I got the chance to do some uh, research um, in Ghana and in India um, in the latter late stages of writing the book. And so that really helped to kind of bring out this decolonization theme, I think, a little bit more fully. Um, so firstly, I'm just going to kind of say a few things about what the Congo crisis was. I'm sure that all of you will already be familiar with it. Um, this is a map of the Congo um, during the crisis. Um, largely similar, of course, to the um, huge province or huge kind of territory of the Congo today. Uh, and basically, the crisis began um, just as the Congo achieved independence from Belgium on the 30th of June 1960. Um, the Belgians really uh, left a mess behind them in Congo. I think that's pretty widely known. There is this um, factoid that goes around about the state of Congo uh, upon independence, that there were less than 20 university graduates. And that's true. But the Catholic missionaries that had been educating the Congolese people um, for the better part of the 20th century did leave behind a lot of Congolese who were educated and could read and write um, in the colonial languages, so in French largely. Um, and so while none of these people were allowed to go to university under the Belgian system, um, they, did, um, they were ready and ripe for political activism and for running the country um, in the early years after the uh, independence was achieved. And one of these people who um, advanced through this system was a man called Patrice Lumumba, who is now you know, very much held up to be a martyr and an icon of African freedom. Uh, and he remains very much at the centre of the story. Um, MEP also wanted to put him on the cover, which I thought was um, fine, even though he's really only alive for half the book. Um, and so Patrice Lumumba comes along and he's extremely charismatic uh, and captivating. And he has a very clear idea that the Congo is um, as, as large and, um, and kind of amalgamous as it is, it is a country rather than separate um, provinces. Uh, and even though there are over 200 languages spoken in the Congo, and I think there are even more than that now, um, he manages to draw together the identity of the Congo as a nation. And largely he does this by talking about how the Belgians have, you know, oppressed the Congolese, and he really highlights the system of exploitation and repression um, that the Belgian colonial authorities uh, exercised over the Congo. And so this really does create a sense of nationhood, um, but that's not very long-lasting. So once the uh, Congo becomes independent, Patrice Lumumba is elected as the prime minister, um, and there is a breakdown of law and order immediately, um, partially to do with the conditions in the army and some other social unrest. Uh, and the Belgians react very strongly and they send back in the Belgian paratroopers to protect the white population um, who are being persecuted um, by the, some of the Congolese um, army generals in particular. Uh, and so the Congolese reaction is very strong because they view this as Belgians 
kind of a, a signal of Belgium's intention to remain um, kind of in authority over the Congo. Uh, and this is, there is some kind of depth to this because when the Congo becomes independent, they don't have any control over their foreign affairs. So Belgium kind of retains this clause that says, well, you know, we'll, we'll just look after that for you. Uh, and they also give the Congolese back the country with an enormous debt. Uh, and this debt, of course, is owed to private corporations who control the vast amount of mineral resources of the Congo uh, and who are largely Belgian and British, actually, as well. So there is this sense that, you know, sovereignty is kind of what Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana calls this kind of clientele sovereignty. So it's not really um, full. Uh, and so because the Belgians react militarily to save the white population, um, this causes a panic. And uh, Patrice Lumumba appeals first to the US for help and then um, is directed by Eisenhower to the UN. So as the UN consider this situation, um, the southeastern province of Katanga, um, seen there in the purple, secedes. And Katanga is the source of most of the Congolese resources uh, at this point uh, and continues to be you know, a largely rich source for cobalt in particular. This is if we see Elizabethville, that's the Mombashi, that is where all the cobalt for our mobile phones and stuff continues to come from. Um, in 1960, it was the supplying large amounts of the world's industrial diamonds uh, of the gold, but also of the copper, because it runs along the copper line um, through northern Rhodesia there. So this was an extremely important source of strategic materials for the US and the UK. For the United States in particular, they also drew the uranium for the atomic bomb program from Katanga. So this, again, kind of emphasized how important the region was. So Lumumba appeals to um, the UN at this stage and says, we need help, send help quick. And the United Nations um, at this stage is under the tenureship <coughs> of Dag Hammarskjöld, who is perhaps the most famous UN Secretary General um, after Kofi Annan. Um, for reasons that are both um, laudatory and controversial. Uh, and Hammarskjöld really has this idea that the UN will act as a guarantor of the sovereignty of newly independent Global South countries. I'm just going to use the term Global South rather than Third World because I don't want to get kind of caught up in the discussion about how Third World is such a loaded term. Um, the book talks about the Afro-Asian world more specifically because the Latin American countries really aren't that active in the Congo crisis. Um, so Hammarskjöld um, reacts to this appeal from Lumumba and he says, right, the UN should really do something. Um, and he uses his powers under Article 99 of the Charter. Um, so Article 99 allows the Secretary General to bring to the attention of the Security Council any issue that he feels is a threat to international peace and security. And this is the first time that anybody has ever invoked that power when he brings the Congo question to the Security Council. And they give him a mandate for um, a rather expansive peacekeeping mission. So this is interesting. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the peacekeeping element in a minute. But what's interesting about it is that Hammarskjöld reads the situation and says that we need to innovate the UN in order to respond successfully to the Congo crisis. Uh, and so he really believes that this is so of such importance that it will bring um, the attention of um, the international community to the Congo. So. While this debate is going on then at the UN about the, the, the peacekeeping mission and what form it will take and then when it enters the Congo, all of the other neighboring countries um, around the Congo also get very worried. So 
In particular, um, the white minority regimes in Angola, but also in Northern Rhodesia and in the Central African Federation, of course, um, slightly to the east there, uh, see the Congo as a really scary place where dangerous things can happen. And during these months, especially the first few months of the crisis, the Congo really descends into chaos. So the economy is broken down um, and a lot of people are out of work. There's great social unrest on the streets. There's all of this kind of political infighting. Lumumba um, <coughs> has a lot of political difficulties in sustaining power. Um, and so there, the white communities in all of these neighboring countries are very worried. Now, more interestingly, and I think more importantly for us, all of the other newly independent African states also are very worried. And in 1960, of course, it's worth remembering that it's the year of Africa because so many, I think it's 16 or 17 countries become independent. Um, and most of them are in Africa. And this really, the Congo crisis really um, exemplifies to them the worst case scenario for decolonization. So if they don't make a success of decolonization in their own countries, they could come become, come become like the Congo. So you see this kind of spillover effect of the Congo into these wider debates about colonialism, about the end of empire, about the meaning of sovereignty. And these debates are ongoing through the crisis, particularly on the fourth committee, um, which is the Special Political and Decolonization Committee, and the Committee of 24, which is formed by the African and Asian countries at the UN. And they're constantly just holding up the Congo as, you know, don't let that happen to us. So uh, the book tries to then position the Congo as kind of a lightning rod for the interaction of decolonization with the Cold War elements. And in this way, it kind of um, tries to challenge some of the, you know, really excellent literature that's written about the Congo as a Cold War episode. I mean, Lisa Namikas has done an amazing book, um, and Alessandro has done some stuff on this. And, and this is really kind of um, where the Congo has been looked at. And the argument is that at the UN, the other African and Asian countries who are concerned with the Congo and see the fate of the decolonization project hanging in the balance don't talk about Cold War elements so much. They talk about the meaning of sovereignty, um, the meaning of economic sovereignty, and how do we help the Congo, and why it's important, etc., etc. So it tries to kind of, you know, show that actually decolonization is more um, evident um, at this point than the Cold War threat. Um, it also kind of tells us something about the role of the UN in managing the process of decolonization. Um, and this is kind of what I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes. So one of the um, difficulties of thinking about the UN, um, at least in my perspective, has been that it's hard to get a sense of what the UN is. And so much of the literature that we've written, uh, or that I think we've all read about the UN, is that it's kind of passive entity, pretty much this talking shop that doesn't really achieve anything, and that it's really then also focused on the Security Council stuff. So there are these volumes written about the different agencies, but when we think about the UN, we just think about what the Security Council does. And I kind of wanted to go a little bit beyond this. So I came up with these kind of three dimensions um, in the book that I tried to use to analyze the way the UN reacted to the Congo problem. The first one um, is a, as a public platform. The second <coughs> one is as a socializing space. And the third one is an actor. And I've used this kind of rather unfair photograph of Nikita Khrushchev with the shoe. And that shoe actually looks really super <laughs> photoshopped in there, right? So um, that's definitely not accurate. Um, but what I wanted to emphasize was that 
it's not just the African and Asian countries who are interested in this debate. It's also the superpowers. So there is this Cold War element. They very much see the, the, the Congo as being um, perhaps an arena for um, rhetorical combat and a battleground for ideas between East and West and between the kind of liberal world in one sense and between kind of the socialist world in another. Um, and this is kind of an ideological debate that's played out at the UN in these General Assembly speeches. And such is the importance of this to the Soviet Union that Khrushchev um, goes uh, to the General Assembly in 1960 and gives this speech and interrupts it by allegedly banging his shoe on the table um, because he is so incensed about the situation in the Congo, or so he pretends to be. So if we looked a little bit more um, closely then about how this public platform dimension works. Well, firstly, um, it's very much a space in which the traditional position of the West is threatened. So the rise <coughs> or the emergence of so many newly independent countries means that the automatic majority of the West in controlling the General Assembly agenda uh, and the voting process is disrupted in 1960. Um, and this really also then dispels the myth of Western unity on decolonization. So it's not the first time, of course. I mean, Suez is a good example of how, you know, these European, former European empires tend to think very differently about the rest <coughs> of the world than the United States. But it does show very clearly how um, there is no kind of joint position on decolonization. These countries are poles apart in the voting. Um, Belgium is particularly intransigent during this period. Um, and I'm going to talk a bit more about the British and the Americans in a minute. So this idea of Western unity is kind of broken down. The second thing is that it very much becomes a forum for damaging rhetoric. So the value of public diplomacy and public debate becomes um, higher because there are more countries participating in it. And because the Congo is held up as this kind of touchstone of um, ideas and values and um, a space in which we have to think about the shape of the world, then it, the, the kind of the use and abuse of rhetoric becomes more important. Um, and also the positions um, of the US and the UK in particular are threatened. And this is interesting because you see it playing out you know, right through the crisis. And in the beginning, it's this numerical issue. But then for the UK, it becomes that they cannot get the Commonwealth to vote with them on the Congo. Uh, and the, the value of the Commonwealth as a voting bloc you know, is really questioned by them at the end of the um, crisis. For the US, they're playing a different game and they really want to engage the Afro-Asian world increasingly in order to kind of court favour with them to stop the Soviet Union doing the same thing. So their position, traditional positions change in the General Assembly and in the associated committees and this really leads to a shift in UN policy on both sides. That's just a photograph there of Patrice Lumumba who never made it to speak in the General Assembly because he couldn't get a visa from the Americans. Uh, in September 1960, but he did hold this very interesting press conference when he toured America during that summer, um, and he sent Thomas Kanza, um, who became kind of the face of Congolese UN policy um, through the crisis later on. So the second level or dimension of the UN then is in this kind of peacekeeping element. Um, and the economist writing about this um, intervention at the time really has this nice phrase, as the economist tends to do sometimes, about a task that has no precedent. So when Hammarskjöld asked for a mandate for the peacekeeping mission, he interpreted the provisions under Chapter 7 and Chapter 8 in a very open way. Uh, and so it wasn't the first peacekeeping mission that the UN launched, but it was the largest on this scale. Uh, and interestingly enough, such was the cost politically and financially of the UN peacekeeping mission 
that uh, no other mission on this scale was launched until after the Cold War. Uh, and this was really for two reasons. The first one was because the peacekeepers became very quickly embroiled in controversy um, because they were uh, really under the mandate inclined to take the side of the Congolese government. And there was a long debate that goes on between the Congolese and between Hammarskjöld and Lumumba in particular, which again is why the cover, I think, um, why I'm glad that MEP kind of wanted this as the cover, because they don't really agree with what the, the peacekeeping mission is supposed to do. Lumumba thinks it's there to end the succession of Katanga, uh, and Hammarskjöld thinks that it's impossible for UN peacekeepers to be going into combat with Belgian troops. Uh, against Belgian troops. So it really kind of draws the peacekeepers into this kind of very ambiguous position um, about what is their role as peacekeepers, how do they remain neutral, because there aren't really two sides to arbitrate between as there were in Korea, um, for example, or as there are in Lebanon. Um, and so this is kind of the first problem that the, uh, the UN gets drawn into. The second problem is that in February 1961, as this, the situation escalates, the UN peacekeepers are mandated for the first time to use force in self-defence. And later on, this becomes converted into military campaigns against Katanga. Uh, and this really creates more controversy again because peacekeepers get killed um, and they start killing people on the ground, sometimes accidentally, sometimes not accidentally. And the whole mission becomes really mired in controversy. And from the Congolese side, they believe that the UN is trying to enforce a certain kind of system upon them, and they're very much resisted and they're very unpopular, these peacekeepers on the ground. Um, on the other side, however, the peacekeeping mission really activates the agency of the UN Secretariat very well. So on the one hand, of course, this question of agency is such kind of a, a tricky subject because a lot of people really don't think that an international organization can have agency. Um, and uh, this is an interesting debate, of course, but what I'm arguing here is that there's two levels of agency for the UN. And, and now, of course, given how you know, much the, the organization has evolved, there are many more. The first one is in the people who execute resolutions on the ground, so the room for interpretation that they have. And in the Congo, with the, with the, um, the, the peacekeeping mission, um, it goes both ways. So in some cases, these officials execute the um, resolutions very clearly and very well. And then in other cases, such as um, around Katanga, there's a lot of co controversy and kind of um, problems and there seem to be exceeding the mandate, etc. More interestingly for me, however, was how the officials in the UN Secretariat tried to innovate the UN structures. Uh, and this is very obvious in, with Hammarskjöld's kind of personal capacity. So he's killed in the Congo in September 1961 in a mysterious plane crash that we're still investigating, uh, lightly assassinated, I think, by the forces that were there. But until he does that, he has a very uh, kind of open space for thinking about what does the UN mean and what should it achieve in the Congo. And he invites, for instance, people to his office every week for dinner to talk about what's happening and try to you know, get kind of bring a range of opinions on how to go forward with the mission. And so there's a real agency then in the role of these secretariat officials in getting together, creating communities of interest, encouraging the setup of new committees, kind of innovating the UN structure, and then um, 
you know, creating this kind of intellectual shift about the meanings of these ideas such as sovereignty. So it's not kind of a, an abstract exercise. They're talking about very specific things, but they, they, they create this openness about you know, the meaning of the UN and the way it can be adapted. And it is adapted extremely well uh, on colonial issues by the Afro-Asian countries in particular during these years. And this really comes nicely into this third dimension, which is of the UN as a socialising space. So um, this is probably the most nebulous of the three, but this is the one I thought was most interesting. So what happens when all of these representatives come together? So not just the national representatives of each country, but all of the kind of lobby groups that are on the outside, the NGO representatives, and you know when they enter into debate and write down resolutions and you know, draft committee reports for these kind of sub 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 committees of the General Assembly, then they're um, really encouraged to engage together and to formulate coherent positions. And that's really obvious if we look at the <coughs> Afro-Asian cooperation at the UN. So this is, of course, in the context of their transnational cooperation and their anti-imperialist networks that are going on since you know the late 19th century. But I think it's the Congo kind of gives them a kind of centre to work around. And we see in particular the creation of the Committee of 24 being very important, the fourth committee, and then there's another committee, the Special Political and Decolonization Committee, and the Committee on Decolonization. So all of these committees get created during these years, uh, and the ones that are ex existing there become activated very clearly and animated about the kind of situation in the Congo. Now, what happens on these committees? Well, it really means that the Western representatives have to engage with these Afro-Asian views. And sometimes it wasn't very easy to kind of uh, figure out how people lobbied each other in corridors and in restaurants in the UN and, you know, what this really meant. And this, I suppose, is the kind of black box element of the UN. You know, we, we can't really have a record of everything. But what it seemed like to me, at least, was that in particular the European powers, um, and particular Britain, because that's what I focused on, really had to take seriously these kind of Global South ideas about decolonization. Um, and then they found that their visions of what decolonization meant and how it would go and what the UN's role in it would be would actually collide with the ideas of the Afro-Asian world. Um, and I think this is kind of um, really, again, what's to me was most interesting about the way the UN worked during these years. So this is all kind of very abstract. Let me say something a little bit more empirical about the two countries that I looked at most. Um, so one of the questions that I got um, a lot, particularly in venues like Schaefer when I presented this was, well, why does the US care about this? They're so heavily engaged in Vietnam during these years. Then there's the Berlin crisis that takes place. There's also the Cuban Missile Crisis. So really, do they actually pay any attention to the Congo? Um, and firstly, the documentary record signals that they did. After Vietnam, there's more paper on the Congo than on anything else in the Kennedy Library. Um, and I think there's a kind of coalition of, of interests that come together for the State Department during these years. This picture I thought was a good one because it brings, it kind of highlights the three guys who are pretty active in at least trying to make a good Congo policy. Kennedy, of course, who comes to power in 61, um, and really shifts the State Department's focus on um, what the Congo means. Uh, later, of course, succeeded by Johnson, who makes a mess in the Congo. And then Addie Stevenson, who for a while is the UN representative um, of the US, and so is very much active in leading the US position uh, in New York. 
So firstly, the US obviously see the Cold War everywhere and they see the Cold War very strongly in the, U in the Congo. And so they really see it as a potential threat to international security. Um, and so they really, I mean, this kind of Cold War lens, you know, tends to lead the State Department to securitize the challenges of decolonization everywhere, uh, and particularly in the Congo. And they react to this by becoming more and more heavily involved. So the CIA are surprisingly well organized in the Congo, even before the crisis starts, so even in the kind of latter years of colonialism. Um, and they just really have an expanded network by the time the crisis is over. They seem to have huge amounts of information that they send back to the State Department. Um, and I think a lot of this uh, hasn't even really come enough into the literature yet. So they've got kind of reams and reams of stuff in Washington in the archive on this. Um, and what they're saying is that, you know, it's very, very important that we, that we manage the Congo and that we make sure that we are there and we're talking to the Congolese. And it's the friendly Congolese that they like, which eventually, of course, leads to Mobutu. So they're extremely expansive and they're given pretty much, it seems, um, a blank check in terms of finance for doing this uh, and also politically because the State Department is focused on Vietnam and they don't really care about what happens in the Congo beyond the immediate American interests. Um, and so this is kind of the first problem which creates a real lack of coordinated strategy at the UN. Now a part of the book that I, you know, there's always these parts that you didn't do as well as you could have done it, a part that I didn't focus on so much because I think it's a lot of story, is how the Congo um, also is signaling about the way the US thinks about economic development in the third world. And again, I think there's some interesting stuff written about this. These are the years, of course, that USAID is set up and the Peace Corps. Um, and the Congo really you know, creates a lot of this imagery um, for the State Department about the meanings of development. And we see this coming out particularly later um, when we get into questions about the control of their natural resources. Personally, also for both administrations and for the US, um, there's a real balance with the domestic race problem. Uh, and these are the years, of course, of the kind of civil rights movement. And a lot of activists see the US attitude towards the Congo as reflective of racist attitudes back home. So this is a kind of a public perception problem um, that they have to tackle. And it means that when these two things are brought together, they have to work very hard to engage um, third world leaders in um, kind of diplomacy campaigns in order to influence then the shape of Congo policy at the US. Um, and there's also a real lack of coordinated strategy and that was for me I thought something that was kind of surprising about this uh, in the documentary record which is that the Afro-Asians are pushing Hammarskjöld in a certain direction with Congo policy for the first few years and it takes a while for the State Department to kind of wake up and introduce a coherent strategy which they do then um, in the latter half of 62-63. What is the British position? Um, well, it's even a little bit more straightforward. So Jack and Mac, of course, have a very good relationship on most issues during these years, but the Congo is the outlier. And originally, this is what my dissertation kind of wanted to look at, was how the Congo was the exception to the special relationship during these years. Uh, and then I decided that that really wasn't very interesting. Um, so I made the project more about the UN. Um, and so during these years, of course, Britain is heavily invested in Shell, the Anglo-Dutch company, in Unilever, and a company called Unon Minier, which is the largest Belgian mining company operating in Katanga, and still is there under a different name. And it's not simply that the state was invested in these finances. So members of the House of Lords um, and members of the Conservative Party, allegedly even the Foreign Secretary, had shares uh, in Congolese wealth. 
Um, and so the, pr the problem was brought very much home to them during discussions about um, control of strategic resources and keeping the Congo facing west, so making sure that it didn't create a socialist development regime and that it didn't fall under the spell of the Soviet Union. So Hammarskjöld, or, or kind of, uh, Harvey Millen really has this kind of in the back of his mind. He also has the problem that the Conservative Party, I mean, amazingly like the Conservative Party that we have today, actually, is really split between uber-conservatives and then kind of slightly more, slightly more liberal ideas. Uh, and amongst the really, you know, uber-conservative guys, there is, um, again, you know, very much like today, a kind of a club <coughs> that they form called the Monday Club, not very inventively named simply because it meets on Monday. Uh, and what their job is to do is to kind of sit around and smoke cigars and talk about how great the empire was and how terrible the Congo is for the idea of, you know, a kind of white community in Africa and northern Rhodesia. And they really support Roy Walensky, who's leading the white uh, minority regime in the Central African Federation. And Walensky is able to lean on them, to lean on Macmillan, to influence Congo policy. So it, this really leverage works really well. Um, and this is quite significant for Macmillan. He does face a House of Commons vote of confidence in the government uh, in December 62 over the British policy towards the Congo. So it's, it's kind of a real political threat. More generally then for the um, Foreign Office and the FCO then later, there's this idea that the Congo crisis really threatens British decolonization plans for the remaining territories um, and that because it destabilizes the whole region, it also creates problems about continued access to the copper belt um, in Zambia uh, and again Northern Rhodesia. Um, more generally, uh, the, the whole position of the UK comes under fire at the UN. Uh, by the end of the crisis, they're questioning why they cannot influence big Commonwealth states like Canada and Australia to vote with them on the Congo. Um, and the, in fact, the British um, representative at the UN writes back and says, forget about it, we may as well walk away from this idea of a Commonwealth seat because we don't have a Commonwealth vote here. Um, and so the, the Congo is an episode that really at the UN frustrates a lot of people in the Foreign Office. And you have these memos talking about how, what an awful place the UN is, that it used to be just something useful, but now it's a complete waste of time. And um, this really then changes the British perception of the UN very dramatically. And what was interesting for me is that the British kind of fall out of love with the UN and the Americans see the UN as something that needs to be given more attention because they you know, have this very uncoordinated strategy and they see that actually when the Afro-Asians can get together with the Latin Americans, the agenda of the organisation can be turned against them. Um, and so they start to take a much more activist role, whereas the British have this much more passive position by the end of the crisis. So to leave you with a couple of conclusions, I think I've definitely talked for long enough now. Um, the book then tries to just kind of position the Congo as a microcosm of these wider ideological debates about the relationship between the West and the Afro-Asian world. So it's not really about the Cold War um, relationship, it's not about East and West and the Congo, it's really about how the West and the Afro-Asian world collide over the Congo issue. Um, and it argues that this is really because the Congo is such a fundamental turning point um, because of the ways in which the Afro-Asians develop the UN. So they're very innovative, they read the charter, they create new structures that lead to new procedures, um, and arguably kind of change the normative environment on the question of colonialism. And this is interesting because by 71, both the US and the UK withdraw from the Committee of 24 because they just see it as something which is totally unwieldy. And this process starts um, with the ways in which the Afro-Asians kind of take over these spaces with the, during the Congo crisis. 
focusing on the Afro-Asians, you see them make this kind of um, very short and brief connections with the Latin American group in terms of getting resolutions to the General Assembly. And of course, this is the foundation then for this much wider cooperation on um, the kind of economic decolonization that takes place through the late 60s and early 70s. So it really elucidates this kind of global south critique and solidarity and the meaning of solidarity in an organization like this. The US kind of, as I said, really revises their views of the UN as a nexus for engaging the third world. That's part, of course, of Kennedy's development decade and this idea that the State Department should really engage, as Robert Rokobi has written about, um, the third world in this kind of very kind of performative way. But the Afro-Asians overall, and the book argues, use the whole Congo experience to challenge Anglo-American imperial internationalism in Africa. So they, I don't really go into it in much in the book about you know, what imperial internationalism signifies, um, go, you know, more than trying to preserve the status quo um, after empire. Uh, but I think the Afro-Asian actors can constantly use this language about imperialism and neocolonialism, and it starts during these debates about the Congo. And they're always talking about this in Algeria and in Suez and these earlier episodes, but then they don't have a consensus on putting it on the agenda. And by the time they've got to the Congo, it's kind of like all the factors align so that they can shift the terms of the debate about the meaning of, um, of, of the Afro-Asian world and the, the kind of idea about what the UN means. And they do that and then to push back about against these manifestations of Anglo-American kind of imperialism and during the Congo crisis. So I won't say any more than that. Um, and uh, thank you very much for your attention. So 1514 happens in December 1960, and there's a long debate that goes through that session about 
um, which of the two Congolese delegations will be seated in the General Assembly. And the US really wants uh, one delegation, and it's not Lumumba's one, it's the other one. Um, and so they engage in this very clear, strong-arm technique um, of buying votes, particularly amongst the Latin American countries, to make sure that his delegation is not seated and the other one is. Um, and such is the extent of their um, activities that it really um, horrifies a lot of other UN delegates. Uh, and other nations, particularly among the Latin American group. And they look at this and they see this as an example of the extent to which the US is going to interfere in decolonization and also the extent to which they're willing to strong arm people at the UN for something which is not you know, massively significant in their view. Um, and so this colors the atmosphere around um, the decolonization question because it highlights how tenuous the decolonization idea is because it, you, know, you have these superpowers who are actually very strong and very invested in this, even though on the face of it, you know, they're not anywhere associated with the Congo. So I think it kind of electrifies the atmosphere for 1514. And it also, it, what's interesting about that resolution is that it's passed almost unanimously. I think there's one or two abstentions. Um, so <coughs> it really changes, helps to change the terms of legitimacy around colonialism, because it, all of these countries who have former uh, colonies and who have existing colonies vote for it because the atmosphere is such that they cannot be seen to kind of go against um, the ideas of freedom and independence. So I think it works both ways. It draws together this um, third world group or global south group and it also, um, you know, again, strips legitimacy out of all of these ideas about empire and colonialism. So it helps them to pass it. Now, I, like, I, don't, I haven't found any documents that says, well, that connects these two things, but I mean, putting them together uh, kind of in a more general way, I, that's the way I would see it. Yeah. That's very interesting, thank you. Yeah. Soviet story and then the, and the third world story is that you know the UN act as a as a proxy for, yeah. for the US, right? When the US doesn't need to send soldiers because it has a UN peacekeepers doing mm. that sort of dirty, dirty job, right? Um, so would you say that the UN becomes more autonomous over time? Mm. Uh, and is, does this happen after I'm not sure did mm. this come? Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's two really good questions. Um, on the first one about the UN as an actor, yeah, I think it does become more autonomous because the P5 
peacekeeping mission, UNUC, relies on countries um, from Africa and Asia, to, yeah. and Ireland and Sweden, but they don't really uh, usually matter in this, um, to, for the supplies, right, for the supply of troops. Um, and so in, there's a, a an advisory committee set up for the Congo mission, and on that advisory committee, uh, there can be no representatives who don't send troops. So the US, they're not there, the UK are not there, the Belgians are not there, and they have to rely on this kind of second-hand information about you know, what is decided. I think in the beginning, there's a guy who works in the Secretariat called Andrew Cordier, um, and he, it is alleged that he's very much a conduit for American influence with Hammarskjöld. But also, I think what the book has tried to do, at least, is highlight these moments where there's a huge disagreement with the State Department in Hammarskjöld. Um, and he really doesn't, he's very proud, he doesn't really take very well to be spoken down to by the State Department. And they find, and this is the first time that publicly the State Department splits from the Secretary General uh, on an issue that occurs, I think, in 61 during the crisis. So there's this sense that the UN is becoming more autonomous and the State Department are a bit more frustrated with that. Um, and I don't think that that means that the Soviet perception is wrong, that the UN does have this kind of Western bias. Certainly in this crisis moment in September 1960, they do stop Lumumba using the radio station, this kind of stuff. But I think it's there isn't some kind of design that they want to be Western friendly behind it. I think Hammarskjöld makes mistakes in the way that he um, gives the mission orders. Uh, I think he didn't like Lumumba. That doesn't really help the, 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 the matter either. And I think once these African nation countries contribute more troops, um, then it becomes more autonomous. But they never break the reliance on American finance. Uh, and that really has a strong pull over the direction of the mission, at least, uh, at least in some respects. I mean, in other respects, the, the State Department is said to be horrified at the way that the UN uses American money to buy guns for peacekeepers to use against the Belgians. And they do that twice. It was two big military campaigns and, and they successfully end the succession um, militarily. So I think there's th that kind of actor question can be fleshed out very well in this kind of, it's very fluid, right? Um, on the decolonization issue, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, obviously the Congo kind of stands up to the, to the Belgians and says, uh, no thanks, we'll do it our own way. Uh, but not unlike perhaps some of the, the, the states in the French community who also kind of try to carve out their own path. Um, and I think two things really happen. The first one is that the Congo opens up the question of what does sovereignty mean? And you see that you know, Ghana, particularly under Kwame Nkrumah and Sekou Toure in Guinea, starts to talk about, you know, is this what we now understand to be sovereignty? That political independence doesn't mean anything. And this is the moment when these African states realize the limitations of political independence, political sovereignty, because they're not able to achieve everything that they thought they would. And it also starts the conversation about economic decolonization, right? So this is ongoing in the 50s at the UN, in the Latin American group in particular, but it, it doesn't really go anywhere. But then on the ECOSOC, you know, they start to talk about, well, now we're going to stretch the meaning of decolonization. We're going to talk about economic decolonization. In 62, they passed PSNR, P, Permanent Sovereignty Over Natural Resources. And this is not directly linked to the Congo, but it's in that atmosphere um, of the kind of changing meanings. And then the other thing I would say, um, and, and again, you know, there's so much you could write about the Congo, and this would be another element that I'd like to do more on, is that this is also the moment when a lot of these African states are deciding between pan-Africanism and African nationalism. And this is, you know, a campaign that splits the African group in 61 when Lumumba's assassinated. And so there's all this conversation um, amongst their own 
delegations about, you know, do they want to be pan-Africanist? Do they want to be African nationalists? What does that look like? Um, and does the nation-state model fit? And one of the kind of awful things about the, the Congolese contribution to this story is that they hold their own meetings and they want a federal structure for the Congo and over and over again they want a federal constitution and the US says no we, we need to have a nation state and you need to have a, a kind of a democratic democratic republic of Congo kind of what they almost have now so this is also a, a period when all these things get discussed and that's what I mean about a turning point for decolonization it's not that it makes decolonization different than it had been before but that the stakes are so much different because all these political questions are tied to it and I do think that it accelerates the process even amongst the British plans things go a bit quicker because they see this as a real danger yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just picking up on, on, on what you were talking about now a slightly more general question I guess to what extent do you think then is this not just a crisis of decolonization obviously as a Cold War encounters but specifically about competing with forms of internationalism Yeah, and, and that's very nicely not binary, it's, it's a very complex mix between all kinds of other alternatives. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's again why the Congo was such a good kind of moment to look at in some ways because all of these things come up, right? And I haven't even really kind of had a chance to, um, to develop that, but that's another element you could write about about how. This challenges ideas about imperial internationalism, but what does pan-African internationalism look like? Is there such a thing? Um, and Soviet internationalism during these years, of course, is also very influential at the UN um, and amongst other African countries in particular. Um, and the Latin Americans are kind of watching this and you know being involved, but not very kind of heavy-handedly until 1964-65. So I think it's it's very much also this kind of kaleidoscope of internationalisms that we see they're being played out at the UN. And crucially, that's where they're played out. So in, in other crises and in other moments, you can see regional organizations becoming more important and um, transnational groups being very active. And they're there in the story, but it's really, I think, at the UN that the center um, that becomes the center of this activity. Uh, and that activity, of course, lessens then over time as this hope in the Third World Project kind of dissipates later on in the 60s. So then the question would be, um, how does what you've alluded to on economic development and the mobilization of resources mm. um, influence and infiltrate that debate about federations um, and the different kinds of internationalism that, that Jessica just asked about? Um, and how does that help to drive or break, um, slow down the, um, the push towards the nation state form and hope of territorialization by some else mm. of yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, that's another book that I think we could write about the Congo. And I, I really like to see more on that. I'm very interested in that um, at the moment. Is that you know the Congo is important also just from a strategic point of view in terms of the, the resources. And the Congolese government are constantly afraid that they don't they don't really want the Africans and the Asians to be involved in this because they're afraid that they're going to take their resources and that they're jealous and whatever. And so uh, all, uh, during these years, of course, we have the debates about raw materials and strategic resources and who owns them um, and also the role of private corporations in uh, and the the ability of newly independent countries to violate existing contracts about um, 
rights over tracts of land. So when the Congo becomes independent, all of these companies have retained their rights. Um, sometimes it's only discovery rights over you know hundreds and hundreds of acres. So this pr produces a kind of parallel discussion on the ECOSOC, but also um, on the third committee about r economic rights and social rights. And we see you know the covenant on this. It, formed in 66 later on. Um, and I think a lot of this draws on the Congolese experience in two particular ways. The first one is that, of course, the nation-state model in the Congo means that the country has to rely on Katanga entirely. The whole economy relies on Katanga. So if they did introduce a federal structure, it has to be in such a way that the resources of Katanga continue to pay the economy of the rest of the Congo. And it makes the argument for that not very strong. It actually makes the US argument much more strong in saying, if you're going to have a central government, you're going to be able to bring these revenues in much more quickly and more easily. So actually, this works in favor of the kind of economies of the geography. The economies of scale work much better. Um, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Um, work pretty well actually for the nation state idea and the country. The other thing that becomes important of course is that um, it's a question of infrastructure and nationalisation that's kind of on the horizon mm -hmm. and the the Belgian and the British and the American approach to the Congo is well we'll call it decolonisation but actually we'll retain all these informal private networks and we'll keep all these guys on in Katanga and in Kinshasa as political advisors to make sure that our interests are protected. And this is exposed really clearly in the ways in which these companies have, um, obstruct the UN mission. So there's this discussion that goes on at the Security Council in 62, and the question is, why does Union Minier continue to obstruct the UN? Why can we not make these companies do what the UN says that they should do? Even you know politically, by handing over information and um, by allowing people to go out on strike. That was one of the issues that this, where this came up. So kind of the role of kind of labour groups and trade unions, which are pretty much non-existent um, during the early years. So it does that well because it exposes that, firstly, the Belgian, the British and the Americans have different ideas about what development looks like and how should they retain these contacts. Um, and then secondly, it also shows that they, they view this as part of decolonization. And this is what gets exposed by these debates about economic sovereignty because there's no space to retain this informal structure when you have a clearly democratic and kind of you know cogent and coherent nation state, which is what um, is being argued for. So it's an excellent question. Again, I mean, I think it would be a great paper to be written about that, about yeah. the Congo, yeah. back to the US. Um, well, a couple of things that you actually have mentioned, but I would like to uh, maybe uh, expand on that a little bit. So obviously there are three presidents uh, that deal with this crisis. So if you could perhaps uh, uh, sketch out a little bit how uh, the position uh, um, changed, because you speak mm -hmm. a little bit of mm -hmm. US mm -hmm. interest, but mm -hmm. of course, the, 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 how much of continuity do you see, how much uh, yeah. uh, Things change with Kennedy, for example. Yeah. And the second question related also to this is well, the debate about uh, race, right, in the US, yeah. uh, especially yeah. after mm -hmm. Kennedy uh, comes to power. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see that uh, playing a role in the decision making in the US? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, probably yes, but to what extent is that really important? Uh, is it not? I mean, you know. mm. So, on the second question first, um, I kind of mention it 
that it's kind of playing out with mm. the domestic race issues. But I haven't written that much about right. that. Um, I think Carol Anderson has that yeah, amazing yeah. book. And she's kind of covered it really well. Again, I think you could do a lot more work about you know how the NAACP react to this and how they mm. you know use the Congo then and the kind of the horrors that are coming out of the Congo as a kind of an example of the worst kind of American imperialism and how this means that you know there is no. Um, rights for African Americans at home and no rights for African mm. Africans abroad, and so I think those debates come together in some ways. I haven't looked at it that mm. much, but that would be another thing that I think needs to be done because she only does it kind of partially, as far as I'm aware. The other question you have is is more easy for me to say something about, and it's interesting because in some ways there's no change between mm. like on this kind of overt level, right? It's kind of American Cold War imperialism, dogma, they see the Soviet Union everywhere, Eisenhower to, through Kennedy to Johnson sees, okay, this is a Cold War issue, right? And they've used that language of, of Cold War. And there's this really interesting episode that happens um, at the end of the book, or not, and also the end of the crisis, obviously, which is where um, rebels take over um, two-thirds of the Congo, including Oriental, Equator, and north parts of Kasai and Kivu there. And they kidnap um, the American CIA uh, guy, um, chief of station in, in Kisangani. And they don't know he's CIA. Um, and so they there's this frantic memos that come back to the State Department about how we have to intervene because they've got this guy, and they've got, by the way, all these other hundreds of white hostages. Um, and it, the Americans do intervene. They intervene again militarily in 64 to rescue the, rescue the hostages. And this produces this you know, very angry debate at the Security Council uh, in December 64 about how you know, hundreds and thousands of Congolese get murdered during the Congo crisis and nothing is done. And then a couple of white people get killed and the, the European powers come to rescue them. So it's obviously um, this question of race that in this international sense rather than just in this domestic sense. So in some ways, this American imperialism is very overt. I would argue that, however, on a more nuanced level, the, the policy changes quite a bit. So Eisenhower really you know, has this ex famous expression that he could think of nothing better than if Lumumba would fall into a river full of crocodiles because he really doesn't like him and he thinks the Congo is kind of a pain in the head to be dealing with. And he doesn't really do anything. So he's very happy to just, there's a memo that goes around the State Department saying, um, after DAG, what? So they're, they're kind of happy that DAG is doing something in some ways because it means they don't have to do anything. They don't have to commit any resources. And then Kennedy comes to power and he wants to change this because the, the Congo operation is in trouble and the Americans really don't have any clear position. And he does this on the softy, softy level with engaging the third world and, and this kind of diplomatic campaign and also this development idea. And he pours much more money into the Congo on this bilateral level. And he wants the Congo, there's this amazing report that's written at the State Department in 65 that says, you know, we're giving a lot of money to the Congo right now, but you know, we see in, in five years that they'll be completely independent economically. Um, and so it, there's just this, also this ignorance right, of what's kind of going on on the ground. And Kennedy does this, um, plays out this policy through the UN more, by putting more focus on the UN. And then Johnson is much more of a militarist, and he gives much more money to the CIA and says, off you go, guys. Yeah, solve the problem. And, and this is why then we have this mission that comes along in 64, because he's listening to them um, and 
kind of arming people. And then, you know, the Americans get involved in all these kind of tricky operations about arming mercenaries and, and encouraging them to come and join the Congo and this relationship with Mobutu, which I've only written kind of a little bit about. Again, there's a lot more stuff that you could be written about that. Mm. So I think it changes quite a bit, actually. Um, <coughs> but what's interesting about it is pretty much the same approach they have now, right? So, yeah. Can I ask, uh, uh, put you a little bit more on this really interesting idea that the UN is a socialising space. I, yeah. I mean, that has so much potential to, to insert itself into all kinds of history. Can you talk a little bit more about that? At what point did, did, did you formulate this as a thesis and what sort of records do you use? I, I, I mean, I know yeah. a lot of the um, more official sources can be read in all kinds of ways, not just the kind of scribbles on the margins and the minutes, but uh, also reading between the lines. So it's, it's, it's quite a messy sort of mm. method sometimes, or it can be. So how, how yeah. do you do this? That's the hardest part, I think, of writing about international organizations. I mean. We have this also in the edited volume about the League and the UN. How do they work, really? Um, and I'm, I'm still between two minds about whether or not it's socialising or socialisation. This is still kind of in my head about which one it is. And what I just kind of thought about was that it's not really enough that these actors are making public representations. Um, they're also coordinating together. So every resolution is the product of a committee, um, which is the product of you know weeks and weeks and weeks of negotiation. So there's obviously some negotiation in getting to a coherent position and what was interesting for me was well Africa and Asia have so many different countries how can they possibly agree on one meaning of decolonization or one idea about what they want in the Congo but they do it and they do it because they constantly negotiate with each other and what I saw um, which is not really part of this book but part of my next project is that in the archives in India and in, in, in Ghana that I've been to, at least, and I'm open to anybody else who has had different experience or the same experience, they were writing that we need to coordinate together with X, Y, and Z before we make a representation. And particularly the Ghanaians use the Law of the Sea conferences as a way to meet other countries <coughs> to kind of change the agenda of the General Assembly, to get a position before they ever get to New York. So, because they have limited resources, right, and they can only go to so many events. And Law of the Sea is important for them, so they go to Law of the Sea in 58, and they're talking about coordinating with the Indians, which they do then at the General Assembly in 1960 on the Congo. So for me, it's a bit of a... I think in, you, know, you can use memoirs as well to kind of think about who are the actors that emerge, but it's the hardest part methodologically about thinking about how the UN works. But there has to be something beyond this public representative forum, because oftentimes those stated positions differ then in terms of the policies and the normative developments that we see. And so my feeling was also that amongst the Western delegates, because their positions shift so quickly, particularly the British, that there has to be something underneath it that they're responding to. And my argument, I suppose, in the book is that they're responding to the sense that there is a coherence emerging from the Afro-Asian world, that then they're then able to use very effectively with the Latin Americans on these economic development issues. And that coherence leads to an engagement with different ideas about the meanings of decolonization. Because always, of course, they're working against the fact that these African and Asian delegates have experienced decolonization in a totally different way and experienced colonialism in a totally different way than the European empires. And so there's this kind of clash kind of, of ideas that come together as these people negotiate resolutions. And yeah, I think that's kind of what I've been kind of th thinking through. But it's, it's, if you have any suggestions on how to do it, then I would be open to that too, because I think it's a kind of a nebulous 
Mm. My own research on conferences, yeah. um, one of the things I've looked at is how these conferences that were held in London, you know, these decolonization conferences, um, how the sort of African parties often, you know, sort of came together and you know, they'd stay at the same hotel, they'd sort of socialise in bars and so on. Mm. Um, and, you know, look, some of that information comes from the sort of local African newspapers and some from UK papers, but um, some from organisations that um, invited African delegates there, so it was the African Bureau of Parks and so on. Um, but this whole sort of area as conferences, as socialising spaces, mm. is I think slowly um, taking off. So Ruth Craggs at um, King's has done some work about Commonwealth conferences and how they act as socialising spaces and um, Stephen Legg, a human geographer at Mottingham's you know, doing the, the same thing for in, the Indian conferences. Yeah, um, I think you're you're totally right. Um, just on the first comment that you made, the, the other argument that has been made to me about it is that because these newly independent countries think that conferences are important and think that this is important, this means that they've been socialized into the Western method of diplomacy too. Uh, and so that's the other side of the argument is that it's not just them socializing together and changing these structures, but they themselves are being socialized by this Western influence because they adopt it. So I think it kind of makes the argument even wider. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that I um, would really like to do for like my next project, and again, you know, um, any suggestions are really welcome, is to like make a graph of how the UN works in this committee level, right? So obviously the arrows of influence go back and forth, but precisely about these spaces. So which committees are linked together with others? Which ones have restricted membership? Where do the delegates meet? Is it always in the committee spaces or outside? Or is it in the kind of uh, sp representation spaces or offices that they had? Lumumba and the Congolese don't have any people there. They don't have any resources. They rely very much on the Ghanaians to lead them through this process at the UN. Um, and he's, I think the photograph of this one is taken by the UN um, guys uh, during the summer of 1960 um, and it's in a corridor it's, it's not it's not an official it's an official photo but it's kind of they're meeting together somewhere outside so the suggestion is that actually 
these representative spaces where the debates take place uh, are different than the committee negotiation rooms and the corridors and the delegates lounge and you know the offices where the real um, nitty-gritty um, kind of mechanics of working this stuff out happens and the problem with that if we take that as given is that there's no record made so you have to kind of piece together then from backwards and forwards like how what happened during these um, discussions but I think this is from what I understand also pretty much how the UN works now right it's, it's this corridor space that's really important and this is written also in the records I mean the Ghanaians write down they, they actually write in 58 it's very important that our delegation has time to um, socialize in the corridors and they use these words in English so um, obviously they're speaking English but you know they they write it down so and they're writing to Kwame Nkrumah saying therefore we need more time we're not coming home <laughs> yeah there were a series of Pan-African caucuses weren't there in um, Africa yeah. in the early 60s yeah. in Accra and so on. I just wondered if um, the Congo might have formed part of an agenda for those meetings. Absolutely. I mean, and there's a, an African Congress that takes place in uh, in Leopoldville, in Kinshasa, in just around the moment of um, independence. And in many ways... Um, this is very helpful for Lumumba because he, he really um, gets a lot of support um, for the cause of the Congo at these events. Um, it's also very helpful for the coherence of the African group because they manage to, they, I mean, they follow the UN structure. So they write down an agenda, they have debates, and then they produce resolutions after these meetings. Um, these resolutions are always about, you know, there's always one on the Congo. Um, and also I think it's important in highlighting the importance of the Congo for the other African countries, right? So they're, they're not talking about every crisis, they're not talking about every independence campaign, but they, they always talk about Congo, uh, right through. And, and um, it's a bit unfortunate, actually, that the Congolese themselves are not that receptive to this help from the outside. Yeah. Um, sorry, another yeah. question, if I may, so a specific one, but um, I wonder if you've looked at um, how Portugal during the Congo crisis and whether, you know, Portugal didn't be colonised or sent yeah. before, whether that put, you know, um, incredible pressure on the Portuguese to, to do something. I haven't really taken much notice of Portugal because yeah. there were many, so many countries to, to look at here. Again, it would be another paper that would be really good. How does Portugal manage to resist this decolonisation moment? Um, if this is the case that it's so important, the Congo is so important, and how they manage to do that. Um, my, my sense is that um, Portugal has this very passive role. They're, they're, they're not helping the cause of the Belgians on this question. Uh, and again, it kind of shows the splitting of the Western unity, because the Belgians are constantly agitating, particularly the British and the French, saying, why don't you help me? in the Congo, why don't you support us, why don't you, we're going we're gonna to withdraw from NATO if you don't support for our Congo policy. Uh, and the, they don't, this doesn't work with the Portuguese, they don't engage in this in the debates, they abstain on almost every single Congo resolution. And interestingly enough, the French are the same. So the French don't want anything to do with the Congo. In fact, there's this expression that goes around in the Foreign Office here that the French attitude towards the Congo is say nothing, do nothing, pay nothing. They really don't want anything to do with it, um, which is funny now when you see this kind of the way France-Afrique policy has been rolled out uh, in these former colonies in, in Africa now. Uh, and they do get involved later on in the Shabo Wars in the 70s a little bit. Um, but they're really, th during the crisis, just absolutely 
just long term. Algeria probably exhausted. Yeah, yeah, this is still going on, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess also sorry to just jump in, but yeah. I think the extent uh, to which commercial interest really drives uh, decolonization policy in places like London yeah. is really sort of cycling in into sort of material interest uh, mm. at a personal level, both of uh, really what drives uh, sort of what this country is doing, and it's sometimes as simple as that. Yeah. I mean, sure. You know, the French didn't have a you know, miniere, uh, they didn't have as much of a, no. uh, of a stake there as the Belgians and the British, so on. Right. Yeah, Same with the Portuguese. Yeah. But, they're, but what's interesting is that they're not affected by this spillover stuff, you know. They just kind of mm. roll along with it, really. Yeah. Well, Great. I think the London deserves a break. <laughs> thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, thanks very much. Thanks for having me.